Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, JJ Peterson. Hi, JJ. Hi, Don. It's episode three of 2019. And as you know, we are actually going through the seven-part framework in the first seven weeks of 2019. We went through week one, which is define what your character Character. wants. We went through week two, which is define your character's problem. And this week is don't play the hero, play the guide. Yes. It is the biggest, biggest, biggest paradigm shift in the entire framework. Everybody loves it when they hear it, and it just rings true as soon as you it, understand it. It hit me hard because I came to Story Brand as a client. I came to like check it out. <laughs> we were right. friends. Like I was branding some things, and I worked in nonprofit, in particular, like fundraising and stuff for a long time. I had worked for public relations. My undergrad was in public relations. I taught communications at universities, and when I discovered this piece. Mm -hmm. This is what changed everything. Because for me, I always had a really hard time being a salesperson. Like what I felt like was being salesy of like, oh, you had to go out and talk about how awesome you are and your product is for nonprofits. Give me money. And oh, you deserve this product because I'm good enough and I'm the best out there. And I hated that. And I always felt like I had to narcissistic and self-serving. And when I discovered this piece, I was like, oh, I can do this. I can actually become somebody who helps people along in their journey. I have the ability to give them a plan or an answer or a product that can move them down their journey, overcome their problems, and I need to be able to talk about it in a way that engages them so that they can find it. And here's the real paradigm shift. It's not just don't play the hero, play the guide. It's this. Stop telling your story and start inviting people into a story. Yeah. And everybody, I mean, we have so many people come to us and say, man, we got such a great story. We need StoryBrand to help us tell it. (laughs) And I'm like, you know, you can come to a workshop. Here's the first thing you're going to learn. It will not make you any money to tell your story. (laughs) Nobody wants to hear your story. Nobody cares. They want to be invited into a story. Yeah. Do you remember that Saturday Night Live character, Penelope, who would like at parties, somebody would be like, oh, I went to Italy this year. And she would come up and be like, oh, I went to Italy. And, yeah. the, you know, and, right, but not yeah. only Italy, but I like the Vatican invited me in and they took me in and I, the Pope wanted to meet with me. Exactly and how most people she, do like, marketing. She like one-upped everything anybody said. And you know those people at parties yeah. who like, you say one thing, you're like, oh, you know. That's called insecurity. Great. Yes. I do that when I'm insecure. You, you see it immediately in other people. Yeah. When you talk about yourself a lot, when you have to prove how great you are at a party, you come across as insecure. Here's a good example of this. Here's a good example of this in branding. Right now, Chevy is running a series of ads they have for a couple of years, and it's how they've won so many J.D. Power and Associates awards. Yeah. So, you know, the guy comes on and says, did you know that J.D. Power and Associates gave an award to the Chevy Malibu? We're really excited. And then the screen goes black and it comes back on. Oh, I forgot to tell you. It also gave the J.D. Yep. Power and Associates. Yeah. I don't know what the J.D. Power and Associates award is. Yeah. <laughs> so here's how you change that. What they're doing is they're bragging about themselves. Yeah. Now, there's a way to do it with just uh-huh. one little sentence and you actually invite Invite the customers into it. So you actually say something like, most people really care about safety in their car. Mm -hmm. We know you care about it so much that we put so much safety in our car. J.D. Power and Associates gave us an award for honoring your desire to be safe. Now the story is about the customer, not about, and you still got to say you won an award. And so that's the difference. And people have to get that right. Because if you talk too much about yourself, they don't want to hear it. And here's the thing that you know as well as I do. In stories, heroes are weak characters. Yes. Guides are strong characters. Yeah. Bilbo is weak. Gandalf (laughs) is strong. strong. Luke is weak. He's strong by the end. But in the middle, he doesn't know how to do it. He can't lift the X-Wing fight or whatever. Yoda is strong. Yes. You want to be the strong person helping the hero win. Yes. Now, there are two ways to do that. 
One is empathy. Yep. As soon as you express empathy, I care about your pain. I feel your pain. I understand your problem. What are you actually saying? You're saying my brand story is about you. Yep. It's about your pain and how I hate that you're having to experience it. Yes. That creates a bond of trust. Yep. The second one is authority. When you actually say, not only do I care about you, I know how to get you out. I've got a thousand other people out. Yep. As soon as you say, I feel your pain, I understand it, and I've got a thousand people out, come with me. Yeah. You just said the two magic things that put you in my brain and my subconscious as my guide, yep. and I will follow you for life, or at least until you break my trust. Yeah. And that's what you've got to do, empathy and authority. Yeah, and this comes into play in all areas. So in your branding, especially, and in emails and stuff, you don't want to tell your story. You want to speak with empathy and authority to your customer. But it even comes in like we deal with a lot of companies who put bios on their websites. That's right. And when they put bios on their website or about us, we've seen things like where brag, brag, oh, brag, brag, I, brag. they're talking about this. One of the people who are from there, like, oh, they won the three point championship in high school and their favorite ice cream is this. <laughs> and they they graduated with this. Da, 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 da. And when you can even change something like that to say, I worked with a dentist office and, yeah. and they put bios up of all their people. And it used to say about the receptionist, you know, she has this many kids. Is there favorite movie, blah, blah, blah. Instead, they change it to, as a mother of three, she understands how hard it is to find time to take your yes. kids to the dentist. Empathy. So Empathy. she says, I'm you. I am you. I, yes. I get this. I struggle to take my kids to the dentist too. So the minute you walk in the door, I am there to help you register your kids quickly while also help showing them the books that are going to entertain them. Yep. So instead of trying to connect by saying, I like this ice cream, my favorite movie is Mary Poppins, you say, who cares? Who cares? Who cares? as a mother of three, I understand. That's and right. that is the empathy. That's right. And then authority is I've helped a whole bunch of moms do this exact same thing, yep. and they love it here. You know, bottom line, being the guide is about listening yep. and kind of giving up your story for the sake of helping somebody else's story yep. win. That's what strong people do. Yes. Weak people who are hurting think about themselves. Strong people who are capable and competent think about others. Yeah. And people look for strength. Yeah. And when you play the hero, they smell weakness. Yes. Don't do it. Hillary Clinton was, I'm with her. Yes. Donald Trump was Make America Great Again. I'm not trying to make a political statement here. Yeah. I'm with her. It, she was the hero. Make America Great Again is inviting America into a story in which something changes. Yep. It's two different tracks. And again and again, people will choose clarity over what they think is bad character. Yep. They will always choose clarity. Yep. What are you inviting me into? If you can't say it, yep. nobody's going to follow you. So empathy and authority are the way to say, I care about you and I can get you out. Yep. Follow me. Really, this is about is listening. Yeah. It's about being able to actually listen to your customer yes. and understand them. You know, JJ, when I walk into a room, and it's mm -hmm. a room of people, oh, let's see, when is the last thing this happened? It was a group of investment bankers in New York City. Mm -hmm. One out of every hundred companies I walk into, I'm feeling a little out of place because most businesses are exactly the same. Yeah. I didn't understand investment banking before I started working with this company. And I walked in there and I was feeling really insecure. What do you think I did when I feel insecure? Start I talk about, about myself. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I expose my weakness. Oh, yeah. I should be here because I helped a barge company in yeah, yeah. South Africa. <laughs> you know, whatever. And so, you know, of course, 15 minutes in, you're fine. You realize all oh, this yeah, works yeah. just like every other company. But when we're insecure, we talk about ourselves. And people yeah. don't look for insecurity. They need your competence. So empathy, I care about you. Yep. And authority. Now think about the people that you like most in life. And I guarantee you, they understand your pain and they're competent to help you in some way. Yeah. I guarantee you, yep. we look for people who have empathy and authority and it takes listening, quieting your mind to really understand what your customers are actually saying. That's why this week's interview is Dean Nelson. Yeah. 
Dean is the journalism professor at Point Loma University. He's got a new book out called Talk to Me. Yes. <laughs> Dean interviewed me maybe 12 years ago, and we've been friends ever since. Uh-huh. Every year he does this Point Loma Writers Symposium where he brings in like Billy Collins yep. and Maya Angelou, and he interviews them. And he, mm-hmm. of course, as a journalist, he's interviewed thousands of people. He's actually going to talk in this interview about interviewing Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. It's a great story. Nice. But he interviews people. And if you interview somebody in a successful interview, you better be listening. Yeah. But it's the time when you're the most insecure. The cameras are on you. You're in charge of the flow this thing goes. You can't exactly control the direction, but you better be listening to this person. Otherwise, you're going to blow this interview. So it's listening when the stakes are high, and there's just (laughs) nothing more important if you want to play the guide than listening. And I thought we'd talk to Dean Nelson about how to listen. Yeah. How to listen and how to really get into a conversation that's good. Not only is this interview going to help you with your marketing, it will help you at a cocktail party. Yeah. (laughs) It will help you in your family relationships. And then there's a magazine that used his book to actually help with dating. Yeah. You know, because you got to listen if you're (laughs) going to date well. Anyway, we'll get right into it. After this interview, I'm going to tell you the one thing that you need to do (laughs) as it relates to being a guide. The one thing that you need to do that is going to make you more money. The first seven weeks of this podcast, this year, for seven weeks of the podcast 2019, we give you one thing each time that if you do this, you're just going to make more money. And they're simple, easy things to do. Stick around after the interview. I'm going to tell you what that is. Right now, my conversation with Dean Nelson, journalism professor, head of the journalism department at Point Loma University. Here's Dean. Dean, thanks for joining us. Hey, it's my pleasure. I always like talking to you, Don. You've got a new book out about interviewing folks, and it just looks fascinating. And as a guy who has to interview people all the time, who gets to interview people all the time, it's nerve-wracking because you never know if it's going to go right. I can count on literally one hand, two times of the hundreds of interviews I've done, two have gone bad. One was a best-selling author who was drunk. He literally was (laughs) drunk out of his mind when we finally got through to him. I will never say who that is, but it was a best-selling author. And we did not put it on the podcast, by the way. And then the other one was just so shockingly rude. I think we went about six minutes, and my producer's literally smiling and nodding right now because he knows who it is. Everything else has gone just fine, except I have the exact same fear every time I do an interview. This one's going to be terrible. I won't know what to talk about. Do you have those fears, too, when you start talking to somebody? Well, I first want to know, are you really afraid that this one's going to go badly, too? (laughs) I think this one's going to go okay. Anytime the expert has written a book and we can follow a plot line of the book, we're almost always fine. It's just the greatest cheat sheet ever. Okay. You ever get nervous? Yeah, I do get nervous with some more than others. And I'll give you an example. I was interviewing Kareem Abdul-Jabbar earlier in 2018, and everybody told me what a tough interview he was going to be. And I made the mistake of going online and watching some interviews, and I saw, oh yeah, he is going to be tough. Is it because he just has one-word answers, or he doesn't have stories, or what what makes him particularly tough? He never looks like he's happy to be someplace, and Uh, so... So you're feeding off that energy. Yeah, and so I made the mistake of setting up myself ahead of time, expecting it to go badly. But I think a little nervousness ahead of time is actually a good thing. If you've ever seen jazz musicians backstage before they go on stage, there's just a little bit of a, I don't really know how this is going to go kind of vibe back there, which I think is outstanding. 
Well, comedians too, right? I mean, they're just as nervous as they can possibly be. Yeah, because they're really getting a lot of their mojo from what they're getting back from the audience. So for an interviewer, if you're getting just a good vibe from the person you're interviewing, then you know you're gold. But if you're getting resistance or just sort of suspicion, then it's going to be harder work. That doesn't mean it's going to go badly, but it just means you're going to have to work for it. When you're interviewing somebody, specifically what we want to talk to you about, because you've got a great book on how to do interviews. I'm curious, though, this specific segment of the StoryBrand podcast is about listening. And and really, for people listening to this podcast, it's really about listening to your customer, because we do a terrible job listening to your customer. And I think human beings don't do a very good job listening, period. And I have to confess to you, I'm really bad at this, just in life. And here's why. It's, I'm bad at listening to people because I have an upside. And the upside is I never don't know what I want. When I walk into a room, I know exactly what I want. Mm-hmm. When I come home, I know exactly what... If you wake me up in the middle of the night and say, Don, what do you want? I will say, well, I'm going to accomplish these three things today. The problem is when you walk into the room with an agenda, you're not playing jazz music. You've got an agenda, and it's cost me. So I actually need to figure out some practical steps, tools, tips, strategies on shutting my brain down and actually listening. Do you have any? I do, and part of it is the work you do before the interview even begins. And I tried to broaden this book out so that it would be useful for human resource managers and financial planners and social workers and doctors and nurses. So well, that- I want to get to, there's somebody else who's used it and did a feature in San Diego on using it for dating. And I yeah. don't want to <laughs> cut this conversation short without getting to that because I think that's going to be interesting. Still though, how would this apply to human resources? How would this apply to interviewing for a job? How would this apply to those kinds of things? Because what you're really looking for is not just information. You're looking for insight. You're looking for, from an HR perspective, what does this person bring to us that maybe another person doesn't? So you aren't going to get that, in my opinion, just by having a person show up cold in your office. You've got to do some digging and look into that person's resume or whatever and find a little nugget. I think an interview is like going on a mining expedition. Hmm. You find this little vein and you just keep following it Because all the other stuff is out there. All the information is already out there. What you're looking for is just some kind of a nugget that you can dig into and say, oh, okay, this is going somewhere. Do you start an interview with a bunch of blank boxes that you're trying to fill in? Or do you start an interview? Because I know you talk in the book about you prepare to go one direction, but you have to be willing to pivot and go somewhere else. Are you looking for the interesting story or are you looking for confirmation? In other words, do you go into the interview with a confirmation bias, which I think you know could be dangerous in some ways? How do you dance between, I need this interview to be interesting, I think this angle might be interesting, but oh my gosh, we just went a direction that this interviewee wanted to go, and this may or may not be more interesting. How do you dance between those two realities? I think part of it, and I'm going to keep going back to preparation, because this is the gold standard of what will make an interview go better than another. It isn't just about your personalities. It's about how ready are you for this interview. This applies in business and in journalism or whatever. So I don't necessarily have boxes I want to tick off, but I will, if I'm doing an interview with a writer or with a politician or a celebrity or whatever, I put my questions in an order 
where I start a little bit easy, and this is a little intuitive for everybody, but I look at my interviews almost like a story where I want to really have an engaging beginning, and then I want to get it more interesting. And then if there's some sort of a a crisis moment or where the action really kind of comes together, that's where I'm headed. So I know where this interview is headed. How we get there sometimes can go off on different trails and stuff, but I at least need to have an idea of some expectation of what I want out of this interview and a little bit of how I'm going to get there, but being ready to take some detours along the way. How do you turn your mind off when you're actually listening to somebody and you know we've got to head to this crisis moment? There's this, you know, in screenplay, we call it the obligatory scene or the climactic scene, and the whole screenplay has to head there. How do you do that while also listening? I think it's a learned skill. I don't think you're born with it or not born with it. I don't think this is something just for extroverts or whatever. I really do think over time, and you can practice this with each other, with your fellow employees with your friends, you can actually practice asking questions, writing down some answers, because I don't think depending on a recording is sufficient, writing down some answers, engaging in eye contact and body language, and getting ready to follow up and knowing where this is going to go. I would say one of the ways you can do that is by knowing where this is going to go. You have some certain expectations for this interview. You have a kind of a plan on how to get there. That's already established before the interview begins. And so I think that helps keep you on track. I would imagine that eases the tension and the nerves, too, when you know I can always come back to question number three or four yeah. if this thing goes awry. Talk to me about small talk. I'm terrible at it. I'm actually not terrible at it. It's just really hard. And it feels like a waste of time and you feel like you're just a role player and you think the person you're talking to knows that you're just kind of role playing and that we're just kind of in this rapport building period of the interview. And, (laughs) you know, everybody knows what's happening here. So I do think small talk is important for this reason. It is a way to get the other person to trust you. Mm. And how do you get somebody to trust you during small talk? Well, that goes back to preparation. If you know that this person has a favorite book or has had an experience, you know, climbed Machu Picchu or something like that in your preparation for talking to this person, just even in the small talk, you can say, man, I don't know how you did Machu Picchu. I could have never done that. You know, and you're just small talking. But you're doing... You're letting them know you care, you listen, you understand them, you've done a little research. And you're ready. And you're ready for them. Last night, Betsy and I went to something called a sip and see. So a sip and see is a southern <laughs> thing. Do you know what this is, Dean? No, but I, but I already like the idea. I do, too. A, a sip and see is when a family has a new baby, yeah. and everybody gets together and sips hot chocolate and looks at the baby. That's what a sip and see is. It's a southern thing. (laughs) I didn't know anything about it. Betsy said, we're going to go to a sip and see. And I just thought that's the most hilarious thing. And it was actually really entertaining. But, you know, I'm in a room full of people that are acquaintances that I think are wonderful people I'd love to get to know. My problem is when I'm three questions in, you know, when I've passed the how many siblings do you have question. Right, right. right. I don't know what the next question is going to be. And I start freaking out. Are you good at that? Has your practice and all your research and you writing a book about it made you good at just the basic 
talking and listening to people? I think so if I'm working hard at it. Like you, if it's just sort of a social gathering like that where you're just kind of killing time, I wouldn't say that that's probably my skill. I do think if you're kind of up to date on current events or asking Well, I'll I'll just go back to some of the principles of any good interview. Open-ended questions are always going to be better than closed-ended. Define an open-ended question. Is that well? If you're asking how many siblings do you have, that's a closed-ended question. The answer is two. Six. Yeah. (laughs) You you know. So if you're asking what was it like to be the last child of seven, that's an open-ended question. Where now you're inviting anecdotes. You're inviting, well, you know, I got beat up even by sibling number six. The open-ended questions that begin with why or how are always going to be better than what or when. That's a good tip. If you're not good at carrying the conversation and it makes you nervous. Start with why and how. What are some go-to questions that you like? Recently, I had dinner with somebody, you know, it was about five or six of us at the table, and they said, what is one thing you've realized this year about yourself that surprised you? And I thought that's a wonderful question. That is a good question. I like an Ira Glass question where he always asks, is this how you thought things were going to turn out? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a money question. That is because, a great question. Because you can say that in a way, if it's a really intimate group who knows you well, that's going to be so great and so vulnerable and everybody's going to be crying by the end of it Yeah, because the answer is always no. But if it's small talk when you're just with a bunch of people at a sip and see <laughs> and you're saying, did you decide you wanted to be in Nashville you know, for a long time or is this how it, you decided or thought things were going to work out for you? You can say that in a non-defensive, non-threatening way that then reveals, no, actually, I started out, you know, as a rock climber or whatever. And you're really getting to know somebody. I mean, these questions really, they dig so much deeper than just how long you've been at your job or how long you've been married or those kinds of things. I I think we would all benefit from actually taking some of our best customers to lunch and asking open-ended questions. The hard thing about customer research is you can read surveys, you can read the essays that people write in those surveys, you really get a lot of gold from those in terms of growing your brand and positioning yourself in the market. But there's nothing like the surprise that comes to you from out of nowhere. It was really in talking to customer after customer and asking these kinds of open-ended questions that we realized our brand promise needs to shift from we promise to help you clarify your message to we promise to help you do marketing the right way or execute this book that you're already familiar with the right way. I'd have never learned that without these conversations, without just listening. Yeah, and this is where I think interviewing at any level, whether you're doing it as a journalist or whether you're doing it as a business person or whatever, I keep going back to it's like jazz. It really Mm -hmm. is because you can start out playing Night in Tunisia and everybody kind of knows the song and then one of the soloists goes off on a riff and the whole thing shifts And the audience knows, even the musicians know, wow, we didn't see that coming. That was awesome. And then they just kind of go with it. That's why you want an interview to discover something that didn't already exist. And that's where I think it's just so fun interacting with another human being. If you're actively listening, if you're paying attention to those little cues that they're giving you, 
and you're not just settling for cliches. I'll be back with the rest of my interview with Dean Nelson in just a moment. Listen, if you need help becoming the guide instead of the hero, we can help you figure out the words and even the heart paradigm shift that has to be taken in order for you to play the guide and not the hero. There's three ways you can do it. Get our online course, storybrand.com slash online. I will walk you through it in hours of videos and lectures, but at your own pace, in your own time, in the comfort of your own house or office. I'll walk you through it, storybrand.com slash online. Come and see us at a live workshop. You say, Don, I don't want to learn online. I want to learn in person, and I want to get it done in about 48 hours. Come see us. I'll be in the room. JJ will be in the room. And a host of coaches and facilitators looking at your words and telling you whether or not you're getting it right. That's storybrand.com to register there. Or you say, Don, I got 20 people I need to take through this. I can't fly them all to Nashville. I don't want to buy 20 online courses. Then hire one of our facilitators for a private workshop. We can take your team through this in a day and a half. Storybrand.com slash private. Storybrand.com slash private. You can learn more about the three ways to learn this framework and also make sure that you're doing it right. Register today. Storybrand.com. Dean, your book is being used in the dating world, not just human resources, <laughs> not just interview. And everybody's got a podcast these days. We all need to know how to do good interviews. But it's being used in an application in dating. What is that about and how that get started and how are they using it? Well, San Diego Magazine did a story about the book and interviewed me trying to apply the principles of my interviewing book to blind dates. So fun. So how do you get ready for a blind date? How do you keep the conversation going? What if it just goes badly? What if it goes great? And really, I had not thought of that application before. In fact, my wife was a little creeped out that I was giving blind dating advice to <laughs> a magazine. But it just seemed like, yeah, that's the same principles are there. Are you ready to talk about certain conversations? Are you ready to pivot? How do you ask deeper questions that get beyond the cliches? And then is this a conversation that maybe we'll pick up again sometime? It's an application I would have never anticipated. And had I thought of it earlier, I might have even included a chapter in the book on it. You know, it's amazing. The people that we like most in the world, you know, and I'm talking about not just impressed with, but actually the people that we often consider closest or the best high quality caliber people are just people who are good listeners. I think they, that's they true. They really are listening. And, and it's amazing that we don't work on this. I mean, it's, you know... In my career, I should have started working on this 20 years ago. What does it cost me to be a mediocre listener? Probably a lot. But you know what that is, Don? That's, it's actually a lot of an ego thing. And that is, if you can get to a point where you're saying, this conversation is not about me, and it's actually even not about the other person, it's about what's happening between the two of us, hmm. then if you can actually go there I think that's another trained response. Your ego is always going to want center stage and you're always going to want to share your stories and you can't wait until this person is finished talking so you can talk again. You know, we're all used to being self-centered people, but I think once you start becoming aware of that and saying, you know, I really want to have an, an engagement here that goes beyond, I'm saying my piece, you're saying your piece, let's transcend all that. And let's just focus on what's happening between us right now. When you say um, 
you know, let's focus on what's happening between us. In practical application, what does that look like? How do you quiet your brain? Because really what it is is social anxiety. I think it is an insecurity when you start to dominate the conversation again. Really, one of the best ways I learned this was by listening to some of the interviews that I have done Hmm. or watching videos of them. And I was horrified, (laughs) absolutely horrified. I just thought, will you let the guy finish his sentence for crying out loud? Will you stop stepping on his lines? And, you know, then I just kept saying while I was listening to one of my own interviews, I just kept saying, Dean, shut up. And so once you hear that a couple of times, you're kind of seeing this from an objective point of view. And then you're saying, oh, okay, you just need to back out of this thing and let this interview happen instead of you just having to tell this person how smart and how funny you are. Oh, my goodness. That's actually convicting. I had the same experience. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it is. I've had the same experience. Mine was um, not so much stepping on somebody's lines, but there's been a couple times, and I've actually wondered if it wasn't in editing, and then was really sad to find out it was not the editor's fault. It was my fault. (laughs) that somebody said something that should have elicited empathy or emotion from me. And I just went on to the next question. Yeah. You know, somebody said, well, you know, it was like, I kind of felt like that when I lost my mom and, you know, that was a tough season, but you know, it came through that really strong. And then it's okay. And then your next book is, yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Miller, did you not just hear what this man said? (laughs) Yeah. But I know what was happening in my brain In my brain, I was going, okay, the next question and we've got to get here. And that's probably why I was asking you so much about how do you just make that dance happen? Yeah, because you're on a time frame. And when I do my interviews with writers, you know, those have a time element because they're being televised and all that. So I know that I have to be out of this interview by a certain, you know, time. So, and you're convinced that you've got to cover these little pieces of information before you're out. But you really do have to set that aside and go with what's there as opposed to what you want to be there. I just think that's a discipline. It's something you get better at over time. But just like what you were saying, if you hear yourself just do it once or twice, you realize, wow, whose ego was front and center there? Yeah. Well, okay. We all need to change. (laughs) You especially, Don. You need to change. Exactly. Hey, Dean, (laughs) I'm curious, in all the interviews that you've done, have you ever known that you were going to ask a question, needed to ask a question, and we're heading toward asking that question, but you were scared to death to ask that question. Yeah, that probably happens more often than you would think. Can you give us an example? Well, yeah, sometimes, and I'll go back to my interview with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. This wasn't because it was a, a have to. It was just that it struck me funny when I thought of the question. And I thought, okay, it'll strike him funny too. And I know the audience will love it. but. As the interview with him went on and I realized that he was just kind of surly and didn't act like he was really happy to be there, I was leading up to, and it was just sort of a punchline joke. And I just thought, no, this train has left the station. I'm going for it. And it turned out okay. So here's what it was. Yeah, I found out in my backgrounding on him that when he was in high school, he did some writing for a newspaper in Harlem, and he got to go to a press conference where Martin Luther King Jr. was. And so here's this young, you know, high school Kareem, who probably everybody is assuming he's going to play basketball, but he's really having this experience in journalism. 
Hmm. where he's at this event. He wants to tell this story. And then there were these riots going on in Harlem, and he's writing about this stuff for this newspaper. So I thought it would be very funny to say to him, have you ever thought about what would have happened if you would have gone into journalism instead of basketball? You could have really been somebody. <laughs> I, I thought it was hilarious when I thought of it. It is hilarious. It is. But funny. it would be scary to ask a guy who's not responding with, with sort of normal social cues. Exactly. So we're about a third of the way into the interview, and I know where this question lands. And we aren't bonding here. It's not like we're going to go out for sushi afterwards, clearly. And so I just kept going and got him to tell a story about writing. And then I landed that question. I mean, he sort of smiled and he goes, yeah, I guess we'll never know. <laughs> and the audience, you know, laughed. They kind of got it. But I thought that would be a fun kind of back and forth exchange. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like, next question. So I thought it landed with a thud, but I dreaded it the entire way up to it. Yeah, you got a 95% shot of hitting it out of the park with that comment. I think <laughs> you, you, you played the statistics and you were great. I remember interviewing Pete Carroll. Oh, yes. Yeah. He gave me 15 minutes. Uh-huh. Toward the end of my 15 minutes, there was a question that I did not have. I didn't have the question walking into the room, and it came to me, and it kept bothering me, bothering, bothering, bothering. And I didn't know, one, whether Pete Carroll was married. I didn't know whether he had had his second or third wife. I didn't know. The truth is he's had one wife his entire life. They're madly in love. But I didn't know that. And the question I had, which just seemed so crazy, but I just sort of went for it, and I asked it, was, why are you still married? That's a great question. I'm glad to hear you say that, because it felt very risky. We had a good sort of camaraderie going on. It wasn't amazing. It was during the draft, and he needed to get back to other stuff. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this is the last question I'm going to ask, and I think it might show us a little bit more about who Pete Carroll is. And I said, why are you still married? And he looked at me, and he said, what? What did you just ask? Hmm. And I said, why are you still married? I didn't back off. Yeah. And a tear came to the man's eye. Nice. I will never forget this. He says, my wife and I do not partner. We are one. Wow. And we went, Wow, Dean, we went 90 more minutes. Oh, my god! That's when the interview started. And I like to take credit for them drafting Russell Wilson because I kept them <laughs> out of an important meeting, and they made a really risky draft <laughs> on Russell Wilson. And I think that's the reason, because Pete and I got caught up in a conversation. Hey, Don, do you remember something I said about the ego being front and center just a few <laughs> minutes ago? Yeah. I'm actively listening to what you just said. I think you just kind of stole the uh, the whole deal. Well, thanks for saying that, because I actually was thinking Don, that you would say, Don, that's the stupidest, never ever get into somebody's personal life unless you've done the research. But I'm sure you would you would have some thoughts on that. But I would say that that was a great instinct to follow. Yeah. How do you know what the, I guess it's contextual, right? I mean, you don't know which jazz riff to go off on unless you're in the moment. Yeah. And I really do think if you feel a little nervous about it, just like we were talking about at the very beginning, that's not a bad thing. That's not a warning sign that says stay away. That's like, we may be on the verge of something here. And so when you're a little nervous about a question like that, I think that's a reason to ask it, but be ready for it to, to flop. Yeah. To just explode on you. I asked a border patrol supervisor a question that he didn't appreciate. And he actually jumped across his desk, oh, grabbed gosh. me by the shirt 
and swung a glass ashtray at my face and wow. was screaming at me the entire time he's leaping across this desk at me just because he didn't like this one question that I asked. You got to tell us what the question is. <laughs> what is what well, ask? well, hey, Don, it's in the book. Just read the book, okay? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, no, I'll tell you, it was, I had gone down there. This was several years ago after a Border Patrol officer had shot an 11-year-old boy mm. who was on the Mexico side of the border. Mm. The Border Patrol officer is on the U.S. side of the border. The kid had hit the Border Patrol officer with a rock. And the Border Patrol officer pulled out his weapon and just shot this kid. And this was when there was some space in between the wall and stuff. So his buddies, the kid's buddies, pull this mortally wounded friend onto the U.S. side of the border, and then they back up into Mexico. And so here he is, his blood is just pouring into U.S. soil. Mm. And so the uh, Border Patrol officer calls in a helicopter, a medevac thing. They come in, they take this kid to Children's Hospital in San Diego, and they save his life. I was doing some freelancing for the Boston Globe newspaper at the time, and I got a call from the national news editor who says, you got bullets flying across the border down there? Get down there and find out how these people are trained that they would just kind of snap like that. So I arranged for a ride along with a border patrol officer. And so I did a whole shift. And then at the end had arranged for an interview with the supervisor. He knew I was going to ask this question. And so I think this was a bit of a charade. But after I was talking to him about how these guys are trained, how these men and women are trained, I just said, but don't you think it's a little bit of an overreaction to shoot a little kid who hit you with a rock. And that's when this guy just snapped. Well, he, so, he shouldn't be working that job. Yeah, that's an yeah. obvious question. And it's, I would think it would be a welcome question in a situation like that. That's the question that you want so that you can give your answer, sort of tell your side of the story. Sure. Uh, but that guy shouldn't have that job. I think he kind of majored in intimidation and fear. And so, yeah, I'm hopeful he's doing something else. Hey, speaking of that sort of thing, does your heart sort of drop when you watch, we got a 24-hour news cycle. You got more bandwidth to deliver interesting interviews and conversations than ever in the history of the world. And less interesting interviews and conversations are actually happening. I agree. It's all just kind of gotcha journalism. I had a buddy call me. He was an NFL player. He didn't kneel during the National Anthem, but he understood and had great empathy for his fellow players who were doing so. Sure. And so he was going to be on Tucker Carlson. He called me. He said, Don, can we talk? I'm going to be on Tucker Carlson. First of all, I said, can you get out of it? Yeah. Do yeah. not do this interview because this guy, he has no interest in hearing your side of anything. He's going to use you to enrage his base. So you're a, just a toy. Right. And he's a professional wrestler and you're not. So you're going to go down. So we worked through, you know, a couple talking points and he survived the interview. But it's a shame when there's something that's that important and you're going to go on a national news show and get your talking points out. And you know in advance this is not going to be a balanced, objective conversation. That's These right. These people are stirring up drama. And if there's no drama, there's no advertising. There's no advertising. There's no money. If there's no money, this guy can't move ahead. So he has incentivized zero to actually have a good conversation. And then add to that social media, where you really don't have very many conversations anymore. Everything's sort of in a two steps removed from personal human contact. And so our worst instincts come out. Does your heart sink at 
the culture that we're living in and we're just not getting to know each other or to understand issues? I don't know if my heart sinks as much as it, I just keep asking the same question, which is, why do we keep falling for this? Why do we keep accepting and assuming that this is okay? Because the difference between good journalism and whether it's a Tucker Carlson or any number of other people, you can kind of fill in your own people that you dislike. They're not actually after information or complexity or nuance. They're after perpetuating a particular set of beliefs. And there's a word for that, and it's called propaganda. And so that's all that's going on here. So what I try to gravitate toward are not the people who are going to perpetuate something I already think. I'm looking for the people who are going to complicate my thinking. I think those are the people that you really want to spend some time with and find out, you know, is there something that I haven't considered here? Is there a way to think about this in a way other than a soundbite? On the one hand, you're asking if my heart sinks. No, I just think, wow, why do we settle for this lowest common denominator? Why don't we put a little more effort into saying, huh, I wonder if that person has a point. And that's hard to do, but I don't think we're going to get anywhere until we do it. Dean, that's the perfect note to end on. Thank you so much for spending time with us. If you want to know more about how to do an interview, or if you want to make better small talk at a sip and see, or if you want to do better <laughs> at dating, I guess. The book is called Talk to Me by Dean Nelson. Well, you're not just a good interviewer. You're a great interviewee. You've been a wonderful guest, Dean. Thanks for coming on. I've loved it, and I hope we get to talk again, Doc. Oh, I think we will. JJ, fascinating. It was really convicting. Yeah. He's a very good listener. Yeah. I've got to do a better job with that. I always think about that. I always yeah. want to be a better listener. Me too. I, I think it's part of mild social anxiety or, you know, I'm such an agenda-driven person. I'm mm -hmm. trying to drive things. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's difficult for me to back up and say, let's just listen for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're yeah. good at it. You think you, you say you're not that, but you're better than me. <laughs> Fantastic. Dean, thank you so much for your wisdom on that. Again, his book is called Talk to Me. It's not available yet. It comes out in about three weeks, but you can pre-order it on Amazon if you want to get Dean's book. And finally, JJ, the one thing that you need to do to make more money, here it is. Print out your website. Get a physical piece of paper with your website. If you've got 50 websites and landing pages, print them all out. Mm -hmm. Circle in big red ugly ink every time you talk about yourself and see how many times you can change that to an empathetic or authoritative statement. That is, yep. we care about our customers or... We know how to solve our customers' problems because of this. We understand those kinds of things. That example I gave at the beginning of the show, it would be so easy for Chevy to say, we care about safety and your safety, and we know you care about your family's safety. We care about it so much, we put so much into it and investing into it that J.D. Power & Associates gave us an award. Yep. What did I just say? Empathy yep. is we care, yep. and authority is J.D. Power & Associates. Won. But when you just say we won an award, all yep. you're doing is bragging and you play the hero. Yep. And I want to be really clear. It's not wrong to say you won an award. It's actually yep. important. I talk about that yes. in the book. Only in the context of empathy and Why authority. does it matter to them? That's right. Circle every time you talk about it on your website. See how many of those you can exchange for talking about your customer. They are reading your website looking for themselves, yep. not for you. Yep. They are reading your website looking for themselves, not 
for you. It's the one thing that you can do to make more money. If you want to learn more about this, you can also get my book, Building a Story Brand. It's available on Amazon or wherever you buy books. It's called Building a Story Brand. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew ZP Dive Deep Hushed on Spotify or on iTunes. Thanks as always for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business.